0: Take a Bible this morning, one more time, find Mark chapter 7. That's been a home-based passage for us in this series. We're going to look at it one more time this morning. That will be the first scripture we look at. So if you want a head start, you can find Mark 7. There are notes. There's an outline in your bulletin. You can track along with the message this morning. This is week 7 of 7 in our series titled... Deadly. And so we'll just have a quick review over some of the sins that we've talked about the last couple of weeks greed, gluttony, sloth, lust, wrath, envy. This morning we're going to talk about pride. We've looked back in church history and we have tried to listen to some of the people who have had different things to say about the seven deadly sins. We've listened to Evagrius the monk. We've listened to Pope Gregory in the 6th century. Uh, We've listened to Dante, the Italian poet. There are a lot of things that we may disagree with these men about when it comes to theology and doctrine. One thing I think that we can agree with them about is the fact that pride is a particularly deadly sin. There really is no standard order for 1 through 7, how we move through this list. We've picked 1 uh, particular order for Sunday mornings here. Different books, different authors arrange them differently. What they all agree on and what I think we can agree on is that pride is really mixed in with all of the other six in some way, shape, or form. And pride is one that is particularly deadly. You might call it the deadliest of the deadly sins. This morning I want to give you a, a quote and a definition As we begin, the quote comes from uh, Jason Meyer, who's a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. He says, pride is a cosmic sin. Pride is a cosmic sin. You and I may be tempted to think of this as a personal issue. We may be tempted to think of this as a victimless sin who is really hurt by this. It may affect me, but it really doesn't affect other people all that much. We may be tempted to think about pride as a character flaw or as a shortcoming, but biblically, when you listen to what God has to say about pride, you understand it is a cosmic sin. That's the stakes. That's the scale we're talking about. This is a cosmic crime. To quote the late R.C. Sproul, pride is cosmic treason. It is defiance against the Creator Of the universe. It is a cosmic sin. Here's our definition that we're gonna work off of this morning. What is pride? Pride is thinking about ourselves too much. Thinking about ourselves too much. Humility is the virtue that corresponds with this vice. Some of the definitions of pride that you'll find in books. Uh, theology books, books about the seven deadly sins, they define pride so narrowly that you end up sort of excluding a lot of things that are pride. And so I've just given you a very broad definition. Pride is when we think about ourselves too much. And that sort of thinking manifests itself in a number of different ways. I'm going to put some self words up on the screen, and I just want to talk to you about each of these words. Pride could take the form of self-promotion. Self-promotion. Self-promotion is when a person talks about themselves all the time. They constantly talk about how great they are, how smart they are. They're constantly telling you how good they are. They are a self-promoter. And pride manifests itself in this person's life because they want you to know how great they are and they're ready to tell you about it. Self-promotion. It could also take the form of self-pity. And that may sound strange to your ears when I say that out loud. You may think, well, that seems like the complete opposite of self-promotion. The person given to self-pity doesn't walk around telling you and everyone how great they are. They actually walk around telling you and everyone how lousy they are. Oh, I made this mistake. Oh, I'm not very good at this. Oh, I really I struggle with this. Oh, I didn't do very good here. And here's the thing about the person given to self-pity. Most of the time, the reason they're telling you all of these pitiful things about themselves is because they want you to fire back and disagree with them, right? The self-promoter is brash enough to look you in the eyeball and say, I'm great, The person given to self-pity wants you to look them in the eyeball and say, you're great. Both of them are focused on self. Both of them want the same thing in the end. It just comes from a different place, either from ourselves or from someone else. We want to hear about us. We want someone, either ourselves or someone else, to tell us that we're great. Self-righteousness. A person given to self-righteous thinking Self-righteousness in their heart. They may not go fishing for a lot of compliments because they really don't care what you have to say. They're self-assured. They're confident. They've got it all together. I don't need your affirmation or your lack of affirmation. I'm living my life the right way, and you're a fool. I'm smarter than everyone else I've ever met, and these people are foolish. The self-righteous person is just confident in Self, And then lastly, you might avoid self-promotion and self-pity and self-righteousness, and you still might be self-obsessed. What I mean is you might just go through life on a day-to-day basis mostly thinking about you. Your world might revolve around you. One of the things you'll find when you read theologians talk about the seven deadly sins, they talk about all of these sins as a turning in on ourselves, as sort of an internal self-destruction, right? Our world gets whittled down to the size of us. And that's a self-destructive thing, to be self-obsessed. You weren't created to be self-obsessed. You were created to be obsessed with God and His glory. You were created to be concerned about your neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself. You were not created to allow your world to revolve around yourself. All of these are manifestations of pride. The antidote is humility. And I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about humility in Mere Christianity. He has a whole chapter on pride and humility, and he says this, Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. The problem most basically isn't that we think too highly of ourselves, although for some of us that's a problem. The real foundational issue with pride is we just think about ourselves all of the time. The humble person is not someone who's just going to run themselves into the ground and tell you how miserable and lousy they are. That's self pity. That still revolves around self. The humble person is the person who is obsessed with God and His glory and concerned with the good of their neighbor, and they come in third place. Where do you see this in the Bible? Where do you see it in the Bible? Let me just give you a couple of dramatic examples. You see it at the Tower of Babel. You see humanity coming together in defiance against God saying this let's build a city and a tower with the top up to the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves, for us. We want a great reputation, we want a name. We don't care about the Lord. We don't care about who He created us to be or what He's called us to do. We just want to do something that will make people see how great we are. You see the same attitude at Babel on display later in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace one night, Daniel 4. He looks upon his city. He says, is is not this great Babylon which I have built by my power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. I built it, my power, my majesty. His focus is on himself. There was a dramatic experience of humbling that came after the pride of Babel. There was a dramatic experience of humbling that came after Nebuchadnezzar and his boasts and his bragging. There very well may be a dramatic experience of humbling in our lives. We may not be as bold as the people at Babel. We may not be as cocky as King Nebuchadnezzar. But the reality is we spend an awful lot of time thinking about self, being wrapped up in self. We are prideful people. What we need to be is humble people. Why is this such a common problem? We've asked this question every week. I want to give you a few thoughts. Why is pride a common problem? Number one, our hearts are sinful. That's a familiar line after seven weeks talking about the seven deadly sins. The problem is us. If you have your Bible open to Mark 7, we'll read this passage one last time. Mark 7, beginning in verse 20. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride comes from within us, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. With each of these seven deadly sins, we can look out there at the world, at society, at culture, and we can find blame, but we first got to look in the mirror and just acknowledge our hearts are sinful. Our connection with Adam means that we show up as human beings with hearts that are bent towards sin. And the real problem, according to Jesus, is that all of these nasty things, including pride, come from within us. It's not just an out there problem, it's a heart problem. Secondly, the Bible is really clear that religious people struggle with pride. Jesus talked about this a lot. Religious people struggle with pride. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Jesus starts to talk about things like giving, giving of your money and an offering. He talks about things like praying, prayer. He talks about things like fasting. All of these religious, spiritual things that God's people did in the Old Covenant and are expected to do in the New Covenant, we give and we pray and we fast, we practice these spiritual disciplines. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, with each of those things, giving, praying, fasting, be very careful that you don't do it for an audience. Don't do it for other people. Don't do those things so that everyone else will look at you and think how great you are. Do it as an act of worship. Do it this way. Jesus sets the the guardrails, the parameters, but don't do it in a prideful way. Don't do it like the Pharisee in Luke 18. You remember there was a tax collector praying, and he prayed that God would have mercy on him, a sinner, and right next to him there was a Pharisee, and he said, praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that sinful person. We hear that 2,000 years later and we don't get it and we're quick to say, God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. We miss it. It's pride in a religious activity. In the first century, the Pharisees really struggled with this self-righteousness and they wanted to broadcast it to everyone. So much so that when they prayed... He looked across the room and he said, God, thank you I'm not like that person. Our hearts haven't changed in 2,000 years. We gather together today, 2,000 years later, we look back on this Pharisee and his self-righteousness and we play the same game, we just substitute a different sin. He's looking at a man who's a pagan, immoral, a tax collector, a liar, a cheater. We look at somebody who's prideful and self-righteous and we say, God, thank you that I'm not like him. It might be one of the ironies of the 21st century that today it is most popular to brag and to boast and to be prideful about our sin, our fallenness, our hang-ups. And people say, well, I'm just being real. I'm just being honest. Well, I'm just being raw. I'm just being genuine. I'm just being authentic. You might just be sinful. We boast about it and we brag about it as if it's some sort of badge of honor that we want to wear. Religious people struggle with pride. Conversely, this is thirdly, secular people struggle with pride. And I think that about covers all of us, religious people and secular people. We all struggle with pride. The psalmist makes this observation about the wicked in Psalm 10. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. He's not embarrassed about those things. He brags about those things prideful. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek the Lord, because all of his thoughts are there is no God. That's secularism. There is no God out there. Life on earth is all that there is, and there is no God in heaven. That's a secular, naturalistic worldview. And the psalmist just says, If that's your worldview, that there is no God, understand that you are saying that in the pride of your face. You are proud in your secularism. Why is it a common problem? Our hearts are sinful, religious people struggle, secular people struggle. Fourthly, our culture encourages and celebrates pride. In the 1700s, there was a man named Jonathan Edwards. He's a pastor. He's an author. He's a thinker. He's one of the smartest men that's ever lived in the United States. He talked about pride in the 1700s, and his observation is that pride was a very, very common sin, but he also said pride is the most secretive sin. It's a secretive sin. He said nobody knows who's struggling with it. It was in the 1700s. Not in a million years would I want to argue with Jonathan Edwards over much of anything. His guy was brilliant, but I think circumstances have changed in the last 200 years or so, and I just don't know how secretive it is anymore. I don't know that we would look around and say, "I I don't know if people are struggling with pride. I think we can look around and say, we struggle with pride, we struggle with being proud of our pride. It's no longer a a private, secretive sin. It's a celebrated sin. I guess it shouldn't surprise us. Paul talks about it in Romans 1, 2 Timothy. He talks about the trajectory of our sin will lead to more and more pride. He talks about the last days people will be given to boasting and pride. One author made this observation. Pride has been remarkably rehabilitated from the chief vice to the chief virtue. God says, don't be proud. The culture and the society we live in says, you ought to be proud. Despite this rehabilitation, this is a deadly sin. you just got to understand, culture and society is telling you to embrace a sin that is entirely toxic to your soul. Why is pride so deadly? Three reasons. The first is this. Pride makes us defensive, argumentative, and unteachable. Don't you love being around people like that? When you get on social media, aren't those the people you want to follow? Defensive, arguing, can't teach them anything? Aren't those the kind of people you want to spend your time with? No, no, no. Pride will destroy relationships. It will make you defensive, argumentative, unteachable. That will have consequence for your relationships with other people. This is not a private individual sin. It will spill out into your life and it will destroy a church. Some of you can think about church experiences you've had where the people were defensive and argumentative and unteachable. The Bible would say they were proud Secondly, why is this a deadly sin? It leads to disgrace and destruction. This is the overwhelming emphasis of what the book of Proverbs has to say about pride. Just over and over and over, this drum beats through the book of Proverbs. I'll give you two examples, two drum beats. One is Proverbs 11.2. Can we put it up there? There it is. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. With pride comes disgrace. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16 and 18, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's the irony of sin and it's the irony of pride. Sin promises us so much and it never delivers. Pride assures us if you give yourself over to this sin, you will be exalted. And the Bible says that's not how it works. It just leads to disgrace and to destruction. Isaiah says it like this, Isaiah 2, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord of hosts has a day. He has set a day. He knows the day. And on that day, He's going to be against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. God has set a day where He will deal with our pride in a final, decisive manner. It brings me to one last thought. Why is pride so deadly? God opposes the proud. The Bible says that. God is in opposition to prideful people. James says it. Peter echoes what James says. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Can you imagine trying to live your life on this earth in a way that God opposes? That God openly says, if you live like this, I am opposing you. Can you imagine walking into eternity and standing before God on the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, and coming to learn that God is against, He is in opposition to the way that you've lived your life? made me think this week about middle school. In middle school, I had a paper route. And I use my bike on my paper route. And my bike, I thought was the coolest bike ever. It was a bright green Dino Nitro BMX bike. This bike was so cool, it got stolen twice. It got stolen once, I called the cops, they found it and brought it back to me. It got stolen again, and I'm still looking for it. When I drive the streets, I'm on the prowl. I see a kid on a green bike, I pull over. Is that my bike? I'm looking for my bike. So I, I had my bike. I love this bike. I mowed lawns all one summer to buy this bike. And when I got a paper route, uh, Amarillo Globe News gave me this nice satchel. And this satchel sat on the handlebars of my bike, and it sort of hung off in either direction. And you would fold the papers or uh, wrap the papers or rubber band the papers or whatever, and you'd stuff them in this satchel, and off you'd go throwing papers. I don't know if you've ever been to Amarillo, but in Amarillo It's windy. Really windy. My favorite news report from the Weather Channel every year, they post it every year at some point, is a report on the windiest cities in the United States. And they say Chicago is not the windiest city in the United States. Amarillo, Texas has the highest average wind speed of any city in the United States. The wind blows all the time. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to ride a bike with a giant sail on the front of it in the wind in Amarillo, it's impossible. You can't do it. And you heard about people who say, well, I grew up walking to school uphill both ways in the snow, barefoot. I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter which way you're going up the street in Amarillo. If the wind's blowing and you're on a BMX bike with a sail on the front, you're not going anywhere. And I can remember riding my bike, looking down the block, thinking I'm never going to make it to the end of the block. These papers are heavy, The wind is blowing. It's right in my face. I just remember thinking, I'm just going to fall over. Maybe these papers will cushion my fall, and they'll find me sometime later when the sun comes up. It was impossible. Writing in that opposition. What a faint picture of what it's like to live your life in a way that God opposes. It's like just trying to walk or ride into the wind in West Texas. God opposes the proud, every step of the way. You may look at prideful people and think they've got it all together. They don't have any problems. Everything seems to be smooth sailing. But you've got to believe what the Bible says. God opposes the proud. That's true on this earth, and it's certainly true in eternity. This is a sin that we dare not downplay. This is a sin that we have to fight. The question is, how do we fight it? We've asked this every week. How do we fight these deadly sins? How do we fight the sin of pride? Number one, we recognize the glory of God. Every week, the first thing I've told you when it comes to fighting is you've got to recognize this issue as sin. This week, I'm putting something in front of that. Before you even try to recognize pride as sin, Number one, you've got to recognize the glory of God. And I'll be honest with you, if you do number one, everything else on this list takes care of itself. You've got to start here. Look up the verses that I've given you. Read them today. Think about them. They're passages that describe people who caught a glimpse of God's glory. Think about Job. Job in all his mouthiness towards God. Job Daring God to come down from heaven and give an account of what was going on. And when God finally comes down and reveals himself to Job in the whirlwind, it is completely overwhelming for Job. So much so that he repents at the end of the book and he says, God, I was talking about stuff that was way above my pay grade. Things I had no idea about reality and truth. He repents. He's humbled. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah is not mouthy towards the Lord. He actually goes to the temple to worship the Lord. And he sees a vision of the Lord, high and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. The foundations are shaking. The temple's filled with smoke. And he pronounces woe on himself. He's humbled. He sees the glory of God and immediately his heart is moved to humility. Think about John, the apostle, on the island Patmos. He's praying on the Lord's Day on a Sunday, and he sees a vision of his best friend, Jesus. Only it's not just Jesus he knew on earth. It's the resurrected, glorified, ascended Jesus in all of his splendor who reveals himself to John, and John immediately falls on his face like a dead man, humbled. When you catch a vision or a glimpse or you you gain an insight or an understanding into God and His glory and His majesty and His splendor and His holiness, humility follows. So we begin fighting this sin, recognizing God's glory. Secondly, we recognize pride as sin. We recognize pride as sin. Proverbs 21.4 says it like this. Haughty eyes and a proud heart the lamp of the wicked, or sin. If your eyes, if your heart are haughty and boastful and proud, you're being directed by sin. This is a sin. We've got to recognize that. We've got to acknowledge it. We're not really talking about the person who says, well, I want to take pride in my work. We understand what that person's trying to say. They want to do their job well. That's a good thing. We're not really talking about somebody who says, hey, I'm proud of my kid. They struggle with spelling and they got 100 on their spelling test. I'm proud of them. We're not saying you shouldn't do that. The Apostle Paul told the church in Rome, he told the church in Corinth, he was proud of how he conducted his ministry. He boasted in how he conducted his ministry. What we're talking about here as sin is the basic thoughts of self-promotion, self-pity, self-righteousness self-obsession, self-love. Recognize God's glory. Recognize pride is sin. Thirdly, believe the gospel. We've got to believe the good news about Jesus. And there's no more beautiful description of it than Philippians 2. Almost every week we've looked at Mark 7, this list of things that Jesus says come out of our hearts. Almost every week we've referenced in some way, shape, or form Philippians 2. Paul tells the church in Philippi, Jesus on the throne of heaven, humbled himself and became a servant. As a servant, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, dying for our sin, for our pride. Three days later, the Father raised him from the dead. He was highly exalted, Paul says. He was given a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would bow would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why you were created. To acknowledge the glory of Jesus. Pride gets in the way of that. It stops you from doing what God created you to do. That's why Jesus walked on the earth. That's why Jesus died on the cross for your sin, for your envy, your greed, your gluttony, your lust, your anger, your covetousness, your pride. He died for those things so that you could be the person God created you to be, that you could do what God created you to do, and that's acknowledge Jesus Christ as supremely glorious. We believe the gospel. Fourthly, we love God and live for His glory. We love God and live for His glory. Every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every person is a worshiper. There are no neutral people walking around on this earth. God created you with a soul, right? An immaterial part of you. And that immaterial part of you, your soul, is created to worship. And inevitably, it will worship someone or something. No one doesn't worship. Everyone worships. The only question is who or what? You were created to love God above all else and to live for His glory. Not to love the world. Not to love yourself. Not to love another person supremely. Not to worship an idol or a statue. Not to worship an immaterial idol or statue, a little G God that you set up in your life. But to worship the one true God. That's Deuteronomy 6. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. That's Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 10. Whatever you do, even in the mundane things of life, do it all for God's glory. Not for yours, but for God's. One last thought. How do we fight this sin? We commit to the means of grace. If you don't like the phrase means of grace, you can use maybe a more familiar term, spiritual disciplines. We're talking about the same thing. You want to fight pride in your life, you commit to the means of grace, the spiritual disciplines. Look, as a pastor, I don't want you to read this book regularly, consistently, because if you do it, God will love you more. I want you to read this book regularly and consistently, because when you do it, you will be regularly and consistently reminded that God is holy and you're not It will be a regular and a consistent reminder to put pride to death and to be humble. That's the point of corporate worship. We gather together in this room. It's not to come together and to try to impress God with how great we are. It's to come together as God's people and to say, God, you're the great one and we're not. We're sinners. It's intended to be a weekly reminder to you and to me. We are sinful people who have fallen short of God's glory, and we are in desperate need of His grace and His mercy. It's why we take the Lord's Supper regularly as a church family. We're going to do that this morning. The Lord's Supper is an acknowledgment of our sin, and it's an acknowledgment of what God has done to save us from our pride and to make us people who worship Him. You understand that when we take the Lord's Supper, this is not a religious ritual for self-righteous people. Nobody ought to take the Lord's Supper in a prideful way. Nobody ought to come to the Lord's table saying, God, I think I've been good enough this week to participate in the Lord's Supper. I haven't, and neither of you. In the Lord's Supper, we put our pride to death and we say, God, we make a mess of it day after day after day. And we believe that Jesus died for our sins. He died for our pride. He died, His body broken, His blood spilled so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know You, we could worship You, we could be the people that You created us to be. That doesn't happen by our own self-reformation and our own effort. It happens at the cross where Jesus died our death. So this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we want to invite you to celebrate with us this morning.